0: I remember years ago, there was a time where I had never thought about where like, to the tomatoes came from in fast food. And I wasn't much of a fast food person, but like once in a while I'd had a burger or something from McDonald's. And this group called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers down in a very rural part of Florida raised national attention to that.
1: Hi, I'm Paklo, a filmmaker, researcher, and journalist, and you are listening to The Next World, a podcast about building movements. Once a month on the show, we will explore and celebrate the work of poor people's movements, especially in the U.S. We want to highlight systemic organizing led by women, LGBT folks, and people of color, pushing forward new models for change. Today on the show, we are excited to feature journalist Lewis Wallace as our guest host, Lewis and I will be interviewing Oscar Otzoy, a farm worker and organizer with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Before we get started, I have a quick request. If you like the show, please subscribe, tell your friends, post about us on social media, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can see more about our show at nesri.org, the website of National Economic and Social Rights Initiative, our show's sponsoring organization. And check out my work at PuckLow.com. All right, it's time to introduce our guest host. He's a journalist based in Durham, North Carolina. He writes, produces audio and radio, and does a lot of public speaking about journalism, transgender issues, and anti-oppressive approaches to media production. He's writing a book about the history of, quote, objectivity in journalism for University of Chicago Press, and working with a group of journalists and activists from around the country to build a network of movement journalists who are committed to anti-racism and social justice. Right now, he's fundraising for a new podcast that he will host called The View from Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. Lewis Wallace, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Puck. Hi. Lewis, your upcoming book and podcast tackles the subject of objectivity in journalism. Partly, this comes from when American public media's marketplace fired you for basically having an opinion. Can you lay out for listeners the framework of this debate within the field of journalism and why this
0: affects non-journalists? Sure. So I think most non-journalists know that the news is not produced objectively, that it's not just this sort of neutral Process and that it matters a lot who is making the news and who's represented in the news. Um, and of course, there's a lot of distrust between audiences and news outlets. And so, m- my story is that not long after Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017, I had sort of mused on a personal blog of mine on Medium. Um, that, you know, maybe it's time to really just let go of this mythology of objectivity and, and really focus on what our values are as journalists, articulate those clearly, be honest about those values uh, in order to pursue the a practice of journalism that's more actively um, anti-racist, more actively resisting white supremacy uh, and and pushing back against some of the lies and falsehoods associated with uh, with white supremacy, with transphobia. Um, and of course, lies and falsehoods um, have been a defining sort of part of um, the, the Trump administration. And that started really early on. I was working at the time in a national newsroom and writing that blog post proposing that we should stop pretending to be objective and kind of just stand up to this stuff. Um, uh, ultimately got me fired from that newsroom and and i started to to just sort of pursue this deeper research around the history of objectivity and uh, the reason that i think it matters um to non-journalists right now is that um all of us journalists or not need news media that uh tells the truth to the best it can about our communities and that represents us and that um gives us the information that we need um, not just as they say to make informed decisions, but also to take action, to collaborate, to build movement, um, to uh, resist. And so um, in, in order to do that, I think we really need to dispose of this, um, this falsehood that there's some sort of neutral objective way to tell a story about a community and really explore the like, complexity and difficulty of um of owning our values as media makers and rebuilding this um, or building for the first time, in some cases, this, this broken trust with audiences who are saying, you know, we don't see ourselves reflected. And uh, so why would we, why would we trust you right now? Um, It's a broken relationship. And I think honesty about where we're coming from is a way to fix it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know for myself, I came into journalism directly from activism, specifically the world of independent media during the anti globalization era back in the early 2000s. And through community radio, Um, it definitely seemed like the most natural thing in the world that critical thinking, reflection, investigation, dialogue, what some might call reporting should be a part of movement building. I'm curious how you got your start in making media or journalism or however it was for you.
0: I similarly came into journalism from an activist background, uh, and it was kind of different. I'd been working for some years as, I mean, my day job was as a barista and, you know, this and that. Um, but my non-day job was as a um, community organizer and activist around Um, Issues of police violence and uh, anti-racism and queer and trans liberation. And um, I was working with an organization called Project NIA in Chicago. That's a prison abolition organization. And part of our work was um, collaboratively producing stories about youth encounters with police told from the youth um, point of view and often um, produced by youth themselves. So we were teaching radio and audio skills. Um, that was the first kind of radio audio project I, I worked on, and I ended up moving um, out of that and into more mainstream radio journalism through a fellowship at WBEZ in Chicago that was intended for community organizers Um, and, and, uh, you know, folks in communities in Chicago that were underrepresented. Um, so it was kind of this idea that, you know, people like me, um, I'm white and transgender, um, and that, you know, as a transgender person, I was representing this kind of underrepresented group coming into public media. I worked in public media for years and, um, was, during that time, always the only trans person in those spaces and, you know, dealt with a lot of kind of tokenism and that that kind of stuff. And I think I, I ultimately um, concluded something that in a way I think I knew going in, which was that a sort of um, tokenistic approach to like diversity and representation in media isn't... Um, isn't enough, that the problems are really structural and that you know maybe one person, a white trans person like me, could sort of get into and access those spaces for a temporary amount of time, um, but that the changes that are needed to have a truly representative media are really about um, breaking down the structural barriers to entry for um, so many people of color and trans people. Um, so that's kind of been a shift or something that I'm able to speak about publicly now that I don't work in public media anymore.
1: It's fascinating to me that... We don't have much of a power analysis in journalism. One particular struggle with the institution of journalism in the U.S. that I've observed is that larger establishments have all of the resources, like lawyers and money. Critical thinking and analysis is not valued in journalism here in the way that it is even in institutions like academia. And what is valued instead is immediacy, having access and relationships to powerful people and institutions and having a globally recognizable brand name. All of that just seems to permanently devalue left journalism, which is already defined outside of, quote, objectivity, and is usually small, underfunded, and lacks a large readership. How do you think we can turn things around?
0: I mean, first of all, I want to say those are all really, really good points, and I think it speaks to something that I've been kind of torn about for my whole time working in journalism is, like, it is true in the case of public media that even though it's under-resourced in many ways, um, you know, NPR member stations tend to have more resources than uh, than other local community stations to produce News and um, news organizations like NPR or private ones like you know the New York Times or the Washington Post, same. And so there's a reasoning or an argument that says, okay, well, if we need media to change, then what we should be doing is working for change within those organizations. Um, and so that was kind of a, a tactic that I guess I was part of trying for quite some years right? Pushing from the inside. Um, And then now I'm, I'm pushing as a freelance journalist and um, somebody who's organizing journalists from the outside. And, you know, in some ways, I think I keep coming back to, like, we need to build our own um, structures and institutions that we control and that aren't owned by corporations and that aren't accountable, as is the case, ultimately, of NPR to, um a structure like the US Congress um that while it may be democratic has its own problems with corruption and representation um and so you know community based kind of models and community ownership over those models to me feels like kind of the ultimately the only way to go forward um i just i regret the level that i'm aware that um it is hard to sustain those models. Right. (laughs) And I feel, I'm sure that you know this as somebody who's been like figuring out your way through the, the, you know, freelance and contract journalism life. It's just, it's tricky, not just for the journalists, but for the organizations that are really trying to do the right thing and be accountable to communities. It's tricky to sustain and there's not an obvious good model for that right now, but I still think it's like, that's what we ultimately have to do.
1: (laughs) Lewis, I know you were recently in Palestine. Could you talk a bit about your experience?
0: Sure. So I was with a, a group called Eyewitness Palestine that organizes interfaith delegations to Palestine generally several times a year and has been doing that for many decades um, with the goal of bringing people from the United States to witness um, the political situation and the human rights injustices. Um, in Palestine. At this point, the the tours are focused on the West Bank because it's very hard to get in and out of Gaza. Um, So I was part of this uh, tour, just kind of going and listening to mostly environmental justice um, organizations, advocates, as well as individuals who are working on environmental justice and sustainability and permaculture. We visited a lot of farms. We learned about a lot of projects kind of running the gamut from um, you know, projects that are working at a, like, political activism or policy level to people who are doing their own permaculture practices on farms and trying to um, use sort of immediate uh, legal and other local means to keep those farms from being taken from them by Israeli settlements and and so on. So um, I learned a lot <laughs> about Palestine as well as about just kind of how um, – Colonialism works um, like on the ground in the moment in practice. Um, and yeah, that that was my experience in Palestine in a nutshell.
1: So there's obviously a million different ways that Palestine is misrepresented in the media that we often see here. But I'm curious what were some of the most glaring things that you found?
0: There's this narrative that's pretty common in the US that Palestine Um, and Israel is sort of a conflict and there are two sides and it's too complicated to understand. Um, and there were just many, many things that I had the chance to witness firsthand while I was in Palestine, um, that showed me the ways in which, uh, it is not complicated. Um, many of the human rights abuses, um, by the Israeli government in the West Bank are, um, really, really obvious and really daily. And there's, you know, um, thousands of people in a given place who can attest to and talk about these conditions, or, or you can just see it for yourself, you know, um, the presence of the uh, illegal West Bank settlements being one of them, the role of the Israeli military and the violence of the Israeli military in the West Bank being another, Um, the economic oppression and the ways that people are just sort of living um, in constant repression and fear in Palestine. And then, of course, the the refugee situation, you know, folks who are third or fourth uh, or for young kids, even fifth generation living in refugee camps um, uh waiting for the right to return, which has never been on the table or considered in a in a um, negotiation with uh, the israeli side and so all of that you know is not actually that complicated and I think that this idea in the u s that it's too complicated, to even sort of get into is one of the things that that keeps many people here uh, sort of wrapped up in this um, mythology and and inability to um, take action vis-a-vis the United States' role in funding Israel. Um, So as much as I don't want to shut down sort of complex conversations about that, I do feel like better informed as... um, a person in the United States as well as as a journalist about um, the ways that it's complicated is actually sort of clouding sometimes realities that um, that need to be talked about and need to be talked about as, you know, actually pretty straightforward oppressive or straightforward illegal under international law.
1: Now let's talk about what people's movements are doing. Representative Pramila Jayapal, Recently introduced a bill for universal, publicly financed Medicare for all. On the state level, grassroots organizations like the Southern Maine's Worker Center and Put People First, Pennsylvania, are fighting for similar measures. Lewis, I know you've done some reporting on healthcare. Do you have hope?
0: I mean, honestly, what I what I feel is like frustration because I I feel aware that there is will in the public and not just will, but like need for, um, a more comprehensive approach to healthcare in this country. Um, and that the problem kind of lies in our politics and with our politicians, you know, especially at the federal level and the role that money is playing in politics. And so a lot of my reporting has focused on, um, kind of local and grassroots, um, solutions and like workarounds, you know, to just navigating this impossible system, um, whether that be fi- people figuring out how to best use the resources of the Affordable Care Act, people a- uh, advocating for Medicaid expansion at the state level, um, transgender people helping each other um, navigate unfriendly and often discriminatory health care systems in the South, Uh, And that's sort of where you can see a lot of the, the action where there's been kind of stagnation and inaction federally.
1: I would love to hear more about your research on how trans folks are coming through for each other and filling in those gaps at the local level if you're interested in talking about that.
0: Yeah, so I do like to tell this story just because it's, in a way, it's sort of a happy story um, that I reported for Scalawag magazine, which is a magazine that focuses on the South and in particular on um, underrepresented Communities and stories in the South. And so there's been this movement that was kind of started in the South of um, like peer, direct peer support for navigating healthcare systems among trans people. Um, A group of folks in Nashville started basically training up, um, you know, peer training um, transgender folks to act as, they call it the Trans Buddy Program, and basically act as buddies to other trans people navigating anything and everything in the healthcare system. And they'll they'll pair someone up and go with them to the doctor or to, um, even like the psych ward or, um, or just like help somebody figure out, you know, where are their trans friendly doctors? Where can I get a prescription for hormones? Um, where can I go to get mental health care that isn't going to be, um, degrading or oppressive? Um, and so kind of, providing a resource that maybe, in theory, in a well-run, comprehensive, uh, trans-friendly system, those resources would be there, but because they are not, the community is creating that on their own through entirely volunteer-run programs. And there's another one just like it in Louisville, um, and then various other places have started to pursue kind of um, similar models where trans people are just helping each other navigate systems that have been unfriendly to us. And so I think it's been interesting seeing the way the national conversation around trans healthcare has been this sort of shock at the fact that, um, the federal government could do something like exclude trans people from, um, you know, the, the language within the, um, the federal healthcare systems paperwork. Um, but, you know, exclusion from language in a way is sort of, um, the end of a path that we've been on in which trans people have been excluded and discriminated against in kind of concrete and physically harmful ways for a really, really long time. And, and in most states, there's not state law protecting against that. So trans people are finding their own ways, our own ways to navigate those things.
1: That's incredible. I, it's actually so interesting that you talk about Uh, the changing of definitions, because I think that's something that's happening in a lot of realms right now. Um, This is a bit off topic, but one of the things I've been following a lot is the growth of the Chinese American right wing. And one of the things that they're most focused on doing at the moment is redefining racial categories. And so just on that kind of meta level of what this moment is about, the redefinition of all kinds of identity categories to be exclusive of people who are more systemically vulnerable is, it's just a super fascinating thing to witness and horrible. Um, I, I wonder if you have just any thoughts on that overall. And, uh, before we talk about, um, garment worker organizing.
0: Yeah, I think that what you just mentioned is so interesting to me because, it kind of gets at the way that um, the right wing in the U S has really successfully deployed this kind of language around political correctness and identity politics, um, making those into bad things, even though um, the right wing is also really engaged in identity politics and political correctness. Uh, You know, like the, the idea um, of sort of regulating what language may or may not be used about trans people um, isn't just something that trans people are doing. Trans people are responding to a battle against uh, our self-definition. And I think you see that a lot as as you're indicating in, you know, debates over racial identities as well and racial definitions. Um, and this idea that sort of um, if you are a marginalized person, a person of color, a queer trans person, being uptight about that stuff means you're just politically correct has been, I think, deployed really effectively by the right wing to like... Uh, Define the terms of that conversation, and I have a lot of frustration with sort of the ahistorical way that that we sometimes talk about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know it's a loaded word, but fascism comes to mind a lot with just the sort of overvaluing of getting to getting the most powerful people in a category to be able to define who that category is. Um, I mean, that's definitely the case of the Chinese right wing who for instance, either wants to be assimilated literally into whiteness on the 2020 census, for instance, um, or to eliminate all racial categories together, or to get to define for everyone else what Asian Americans are and who they are. And so, yeah, it's looking at that on the flip side of uh, definitionally erasing trans people is just a logical extension of that kind of epistemological violence. So, yeah, these times.
0: (sighs) Epistemological violence, indeed.
1: So next month, April, marks the sixth anniversary of the Rana Plaza building collapse in Bangladesh. 50,000 people, garment workers, went on strike in January. We're going to talk about this more in the future on a different show, but for now, we just want to give a shout out to the fierce garment workers who are leading those struggles.
0: I mean, it's kind of a... Amazing, isn't it, at this point that some of these forms of labor remain invisible, especially with the extent to which uh immigration and immigrants and undocumented immigrants in the US have been sort of at the at the um top of the discussion a lot and yet it feels like it continues to be true that um folks have to have to mobilize and come together and, and do things like this giant strike. In Bangladesh in order to draw attention, um, draw the attention of people on kind of the consumer side of all of this who are maybe just, you know, shopping at H and M or the McDonald's or whatever it is, unaware of the labor that goes into all of that. And I know like I on a day to day basis am, you know, participating in that and um, seeing these sort of mass mobilizations can be a really important reminder. I remember years ago, there was a time where I had never thought about where like, t- the tomatoes came from in fast food. And I wasn't much of a fast food person, but like once in a while I'd had a burger or something from McDonald's. And this group called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers down in a very rural part of Florida raised national attention to that. Um, and that's actually who our guest is going to be today, right?
1: Totally. Oscar Otzoy is a senior staff member and leader of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Originally from Guatemala, he worked in the agricultural industry across the East Coast for many years as a harvester in everything from tomatoes to blueberries. Today, he conducts workers' rights education in the fields as part of the Fair Food Program. He hosts daily radio shows on the CIW's low-power community FM radio station. He leads weekly community meetings. He receives complaints of abuses in the fields, and he manages wage theft claims. And he represents the C.I.W. at a national level. He'll be speaking to us now through Marley, a Spanish-English interpreter, also with the C.I.W. Welcome to the next world, Oscar. I'm wondering if you could talk about the work of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers.
2: Sí, así es. Buenas tardes. que nada. Quería nomás agradecer por la oportunidad de que nos dan como parte de del trabajo de la coalición que hacemos desde Imoca.
3: So good afternoon and first I just want to thank you all for, um, for taking the time to hear a little bit more about the story of the Coalition of Amaski workers.
2: Y pues básicamente la la coalición eh, una parte de lo en parte del trabajo que hacemos acá es Básicamente, velar por los derechos de los trabajadores ahora que tenemos el programa que protege y que también ayuda a los trabajadores a a que puedan hablar de los problemas, pero también um, creo que hay diferentes ramas del trabajo que realizamos aquí en So
3: the principal role of the Coalition of Vamakli Workers is to fight for the rights of farm workers. And so today, of course, we have the Fair Food Program, which ensures that workers have a voice in the workplace and the ability to um, to seek redress when they have issues. And so there's there's within all of that, there's actually quite a few layers of work and areas of work that we have.
0: The CIW is doing a fair food tour from March 1st to the 14th. Uh, we'd love to hear about the tour and just how that fits into this work that you're doing, where you're going and who you'll be talking to. Sí,
2: eso es uh, es verdad. Vamos a tener una gira que comienza el, el 1 de marzo hasta el 14 catorce de marzo, en la cual vamos a salir de desde Imocali, vamos a ir con un grupo, esperamos que un, un por lo menos unos cincuenta, unos 60 trabajadores quienes uh, nos puedan acompañar para poder uh, a hacer posible de lo que es uh, como presionando a las corporaciones que que todavía no forman parte del del programa por comida justa, corporaciones como Wendy's que todavía uh, se niegan a reconocer uh, la la labor uh, o el esfuerzo que hacen los trabajadores en los campos.
3: And so we'll be heading out from a Lockley, that is correct. Uh, around the 1st of March until the 14th. And we'll, on this tour, which we're hoping we'll have, you know, upwards of 60 or 70 farm workers and their families, we'll be traveling to major, um, to major stops all around the country to work with students and, uh, and other allies in order to put pressure on those companies that have yet to join the fair food program. Companies like Wednesdays that have so far refused to support the changes in the fair food program and to join that program. Uh, and so that's what the tour is really about.
2: Y estaremos yendo primero a a Norte Carolina, luego iremos a Columbus, Ohio, también estaremos yendo a Michigan y al final estaremos en la Universidad de Florida. Creo que vamos a estar, para esta gira vamos a estar presionando directamente lo que son las las administraciones de las universidades para que corten el contrato que tienen con Wendy's porque muchas de de estas universidades tienen Wendy's dentro de de su campus y estamos haciendo esta gira para poder darles un nuevo llamado a estas universidades a que no hagan contratos con Wendy's hasta que no cumpla con los estándares de lo que es el programa por comida justa.
3: And so on this tour we'll be starting off by heading to North Carolina. From North Carolina we'll go to Ohio State University and then to the University of Michigan and finally to the University of Florida. And during this tour and all of these stops our focus will be on the actual administration of the major universities that are at each of those stops which currently have contracts with Wendy's. So they have Wendy's on campus. And what we're asking them to do as, as universities is to cut those business relationships until, with Wendy's until Wendy's meets the standards of the Fair Food
1: Program. So I know that the CIW has been around for a while. And way back in 2003, I had the opportunity to travel to Immokalee and help build the low-power FM transmitter. Um, I'm so curious how radio work and your work more generally has changed over the last 15 years. Have, have there been large differences in how you structure campaigns?
2: Bueno, primero que nada quiero darte las gracias así por medio de esta oportunidad que tenemos de poder haber hecho este viaje a
3: So first, I want to thank you for having come down all the way to Immokalee in order to help us.
2: Ayudar la, a la radio para la creación es, uh, ha sido bastante importante y creo que es un medio en la cual nosotros podemos llegar a, a la comunidad que es nueva en cada temporada aquí en la comunidad y que la radio ha jugado un papel bastante importante para poder um, decirle a esa gente que a lo mejor no sabe de la coalición, no sabe de tal vez de sus derechos, pero la radio nos ha dado esa oportunidad de poder llegar hasta hasta los rinconcitos donde la gente tiene la oportunidad de, de saber sobre nosotros
3: because the that moment of establishing our radio station was a tremendous moment for us and has been incredibly important because in you know, each season, there's a lot of turnover in our community and new people are always coming around um, in the industry. And so the radio has played an incredibly important role in helping us reach all of those new people, to educate them about what the CIW is and what their rights are, and not only to get to the people who are right immediately here um, in town, but to be able to reach truly the, you know, all of the corners of our community, uh, through the radio and educate them about who the CIW
2: is. Y en cuanto a las campañas, creo que también ha uh, sido bien importante de poder uh, invitar a la comunidad para que nos acompañen desde el 2001 hasta hoy en día. O, como cómo la comunidad ha salido, cómo la comunidad nos ha acompañado para para poder uh, protestar frente a las uh, a los restaurantes o a las tiendas de las grandes corporaciones y que y creo que es bastante importante todo el trabajo que es que hemos estado realizando hasta ahora porque vemos el resultado de, de la campaña que hoy tenemos 14 corporaciones que están dentro de este programa y que también están um, haciendo su parte para poder uh, in, implementar lo que es el programa por comida justa en los campos y que hoy miles de trabajadores tienen una voz, tienen tienen uh, la participación en 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 cuanto a las decisiones que las compañías quieran tomar y es, creo que es un es un momento bastante importante en la que hemos llegado hasta ahora.
3: And also since then we've continued with a broader campaign you know, first to, to mobilize within our own community to have community members as well as allies come out to countless actions in the campaign for fair food to put pressure on these large corporations to sign agreements with us. And I think it's exciting to think about, you know, between then and now, uh, we are now really seeing the fruits of that labor and of that uh, and of that campaign because now we have legally binding agreements with 14 major companies. And thanks to those agreements, we've now been able to actually implement the Fair Food Program. And so under the Fair Food Program, tens of thousands of workers now have their rights protected. They have a voice in the workplace. And so it's truly been a a huge change uh, over the last decade.
1: I'm wondering, Oscar, if you could talk some about the strategy of going after the corporations that are at the top of the supply chain.
2: Creo que uh, es bien importante, sí, reconocer eso, de que la estrategia de la, de la coalición primero fue aquí en la comunidad organizando lo que es la, la comunidad, pidiendo a la comunidad a que participe en paros laborales, participe en uh, marchas localmente o participara en lo que son huelgas de hambre para poder uh, buscar verdad una solución directamente con los rancheros a uh, donde uno normalmente va a trabajar.
3: Yeah, I think that you know, with initially when the CIW started, it was it was that first step was organizing within our own community, mobilizing our own community uh, to confront the conditions we are facing and to call for dialogue with the growers who are actually owners of the farms we were working.
2: Pero al ver que uh, la, los rancheros no no tenían una respuesta positiva. Ellos uh, se negaban a venir solamente a un diálogo, no querían escuchar uh, al trabajador. La misma comunidad analizó sobre el momento en que se encontraban en aquellos años y analizó para poder pensar un poquito más allá de quiénes son los que se benefician, quiénes son los que sacan realmente la ganancia con el sudor del trabajador, con el esfuerzo de los trabajadores, y creo que la conclusión fue uh, ver más arriba, ver hacia, hacia las corporaciones que también tienen un papel, tienen un papel bastante importante que realizan para que el trabajador reciba los salarios, viva en las condiciones but after really
3: uh, coming to realize that the growers themselves were not going to come to the table, the community itself did its own analysis of the industry and of the market and said, well, who really has the power in these circumstances? Who really is benefiting and profiting from the work and the sweat that? we are leaving in the fields. And the answer to that was clearly the large buyers at the top of the food chain who have an incredibly important role to play and an influence on not only the wages, but the overall conditions and the pace of work that we as farm workers experience at the bottom of the supply chain.
2: Entonces, al darnos, al darnos cuenta como trabajadores sobre, sobre el poder que tienen las corporaciones en generar la pobreza dentro de comunidades como Imocali, decidimos, uh, se decidió hacer crear demandas que son un centavo más por cada libra de tomate, un código de conducta donde hay cero tolerancia a la esclavitud, cero tolerancia al acoso sexual, y la tercera es la voz y la participación de trabajadores en decisiones que corporaciones quieran o cambios que quieran hacer las compañías agrícolas junto con las corporaciones. Entonces, se le dio básicamente uh, se, se agregó en eso lo que es uh, la opinión de los trabajadores.
3: And So, the CIW and the community decided to launch this broader campaign with particular demands of these large corporations. The first was the, the demand for um one penny more per pound Uh, which would go, which would be paid by the corporations and goes towards wages for workers. It was also, the second demand was a zero tolerance for egregious abuses like forced labor and sexual violence and protections for other human rights abuses. And finally, that farm workers have a voice in the process that they are always a part of those decisions that are made about the work environment with and what goes into the code um, with regards To the the farms where they were working and the decisions that growers were making, and so um, those were the three the three principal demands of the of the campaign.
1: Well, thank you so much, Oscar Atzoy and Marley, for coming on today's show. Thank Thank you. Good luck with everything, and we'll look forward to hearing how it goes. To close out the show, we're playing an introduction to the new social contract a platform of policies to advance comprehensive, transformative, community-led solutions to systemic issues. We'll talk more about this project in a future episode of this podcast. Our
4: country is increasingly divided on almost every issue. The one thing almost everyone agrees on is that the system isn't working for anyone. In order to create universal solutions for everyone, you have to design them around people who have been most marginalized. Only by doing that do you actually achieve universal solutions for everyone. The new social contract is a project of NESRI that pulls together the boldest and most transformative community-driven solutions around the country and puts them together in one framework. We look at solutions in five different categories because we're focusing particularly on economic, racial and gender justice and the way that they intersect. Right now, public spending and revenue is just really driving more concentrated wealth. But that doesn't have to be the case. We can really build income and risk solidarity so that we have the kind of health care system where if my neighbor is sick today, I'm paying into a system to make sure she or he is okay. And if it strikes my family next year, I know that my community, my state, my country is pooling resources to make sure that we're all as healthy as we can be. But we don't have to stop at health care. We need universal child care. We need to make sure everyone has a basic income. We all know at this point that finance and the way finance functions is what is concentrating wealth in this country. That plus land speculation is at the root of a lot of the problems. So we really need to transform and revision finance. We have lots of models that can do that. One model that uh, communities are pushing for and that movements are calling for is postal banking and public banking. Workplaces in low-wage labor are virtually lawless. It is the rule of law has broken down entirely. We know that something like two-thirds of workers or more will see their wages stolen this week. But there are incredible efforts out there like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers that have reorganize corporate supply chains to ensure that workers' human rights at the bottom are actually protected. Worker co-ops are yet another alternative that give people the ability to be both workers and owners at the same time. We also need to rethink from the ground up how to decriminalize our society and create an alternative. We have some of the highest rates of prison populations in the country, and many of our social systems are highly criminalized. Restorative justice is an approach that can be brought into many of our systems because it's not just the schools and it's not just the streets that are criminalized. The other area we look at is land and housing. We are looking at solutions in in this project, like community land trusts, there are 200 around the country, where housing is not a speculative commodity, but rather a vital resource that is designed to ensure stable and secure communities. Energy right now is all about profit. Despite the fact that we're facing the climate crisis, despite the fact that uh, some people can't afford basic utilities, we could have community-controlled green energy everywhere in this country. We have the technology and we have the infrastructure to do it. We need to fix our representational democracy and then build on it to have a more participatory, more equitable, more inclusive democracy. This means that parents and students should be engaged and participating and be decision-makers in their schools. This means that workers should have some influence, control, and autonomy over their workplace conditions. This means that local budgets should not be decided behind closed doors, but rather communities need to be involved in how those public resources are deployed. We're in a moment of enormous instability, which means that there will be change. Down the road, the question becomes what kind of change?
1: Okay, that's our show. Thank you for listening to The Next World. I'm Puck Lowe. You can find out more about my work at Pucklow.com. You can see more of Lewis Wallace's work at LewisPants.com. Follow him on Twitter at LewisPants, and look out for his podcast, The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. You can learn more about Oscar Otzoy and the Coalition of Immokalee Workers at ciw online.org and at ciw on Twitter. Thank you to Kita P for providing the tunes for this episode. You can follow her at Kita P Music on Twitter. You can read more in depth on many of the issues we talked about, like healthcare and workers' rights, on the Nesri website, nesri.org. Thank
0: you again, Louis. Thank you. It's great to be here.